you are listening to Unity Unmuted, and we're glad you're here. Unity Unmuted is an audio exploration of what it means to conceive of, create, and sustain a union in America today. We share struggles, successes, and personal stories from our membership and from our fellow union members across the country to share the power of solidarity. This is episode two, and yes, there is a lot more that goes into making a union from scratch. More stories to come in the next 30 minutes. John Albert Mosley is the program coordinator for the Department of Visual and Media Arts, and Anna Fetter is the head of film exhibition and festival programs. It all started with the two of them, so we felt it appropriate to talk with them together. The two of you have been extremely active in our union since uh, really day one. The two of you are the day one, uh, insofar as I understand it, of our union. Can you tell me uh, what that genesis was like? How did this all come about? So when I came to Emerson, I thought what was really odd to me was like the faculty were organized and the police were organized, but the staff were like the stepchild that you hid in the attic. The things I recall when I first came to Emerson was, oh, we'll take care of staff, but not right now because of LA campus. And then it was, okay, we'll take care of staff later because we're too busy dealing with the little building. You know, we got tired of being invisible and having no voice and and being paid horribly low. But I think the catalyst was the very thing that led us to our current language on the um, the shared sick bank. I was hired in, I think, late August and came into my job, and I ended up having an emergency medical situation that set me back in October, right after school started. As a brand new employee, didn't have much sick time or anything like that. And I was, of course, very nervous that, oh my God, I'll lose my job, and how do you choose between recovering from major surgery and you know not having the sick time to do it? Of course, my supervisor, who I think was pretty good at the time, definitely said, first of all, don't worry about it. We're going to sort something out. But Anna, in particular, was an amazing advocate on how the staff in VMA could donate some of their sick time toward me. This became a fight that Anna took on in, in you know, for, for my benefit that, you know, the, the, the spirit of what a union does is support each other. At the end of the day, you know, the real issue is, is people and how we care for each other in our community. You know, so that started language over a sick bank that the college temporarily provided because of Anna's uh, tenacious work on that. When I had come into the department, there was another admin in the department who had fairly recently gone through uh, cancer treatment. I was led to believe from that that folks were able to donate sick time to this employee. So I had thought it was already, you know, and, and it didn't, it, I guess it didn't even occur to me that that wouldn't be possible. Like why would, you know, it just seemed like such a, such a fundamental thing in terms of a, a workplace being a, a caring environment. So that's why I had gone in with, to, you know, contacting HR with the assumption that it would be very easy for me to donate my sick time uh, to John Albert. And then after we got the okay, and of course, it, you know, I, 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 as I always do, I'm, I'm sort of famous for uh, threatening to handcuff myself to something. Um, they did say, you know, we'll, we'll make, you know, we'll, we'll make this happen. 
And then shortly thereafter, another employee found themselves in a similar situation with, you know, needing to take lots of time with no notice, major health concern. And I said, well, great, we've we figured this out for, you know, for John Albert, and I'm just going to go through the same process and donate to this other employee. And they said, well, oh, well, you know, not so fast. This is not a this is not a policy. And, and so I, I realized I was going to have to do it all over again, you know, the threatening to handcuff myself to something. And that's that was for me, really, that was the, the, the moment when it was like, OK, we have to make this an actual policy, you know, and we tried going through the institution, you know, it brought got brought up in a staff forum and I think took Lee off guard a little bit. And, you know, and he said, well, of course, you know, this sounds like you're like, you know, of course, it fits the college's values. And of course, we should have this. And we, you know, I we had this in another institution where I was, but still nothing happened. You know, it, it was a, you know, everyone wanted to say, oh, yes, this is a fantastic idea. Of, co- of course, we should have this. Of course, it it fits Emerson's college's values. But no one actually made it happen until we pushed forward in our contract. And to this day, the institution does not credit us. They extended it beyond those of us, in, you know, in the bargaining unit. So uh, all staff have access to this. But when they send out the yearly or, or biannual reminder, they somehow just neglect to mention that this was something that we fought for. And they're really, you know, taking credit for it. It was one of these weird things where after I was healed and back, we started looking at each other saying, number one, we need to talk to HR about making this a policy. And I remember Anne and I going to a meeting, talking to them, and it was really clear they had absolutely no interest in making this a policy. And I said, but I have the policy here. You wrote it. I've got the language. And I think that really was the catalyst of us like thinking, how do we go about forming a union? And I think that was, you know, it takes two people. And it takes a little bit of bravery, but it also takes some drive. And Anna had that drive. Ilona shared John Albert and Anna's frustration around the lack of common sense in this situation. Uh, If you have a disability, I mean, that's a big thing. Like, workers who need some accommodations to do their work. That's just unheard of. We fight for accommodations. It's like, no, no, we can't, we can't have that. And it's like, why? Why, why can't we have that? It's like, it, it, it is, oh, because it's unfair? Who, who's, who's upset about it? Who's sitting here upset about their coworker who's sick, who was, you know, gone a few more days a year than they are? So we, in our research and sort of looking at the history of organizing, obviously women's needs and efforts have been uh, the key catalyst and the key engine behind union developments. Do you see other sort of building block issues within our union that that do reflect that uh, in a similar way? So one of the other catalyst topics that really helped rally people around organizing was that we had discovered, and this is not purely a feminist issue, but we discovered that those who were going on maternity leave, were being given inconsistent policies and advice and final approvals from HR. And we ended up finding out that Emerson was even following the minimum requirements for maternity or paternity leave that the state recommended. I remember at a staff forum after we were 
in the thick of organizing, someone raised their hand and, and basically said, do you know there's a problem with this policy, Lee Pelton? And Lee Pelton kind of said, I do now. <laughs> someone had the power to speak up. I, I have more comments on the power of speaking up later. But I would say that, you know, while that does definitely seem an issue of women in the workplace to have a really good leave policy during, you know, the birth of their child, it's also, it's a family policy because um, men also take time off or, you know, same-sex couples take time off or anyone who needs to be adopting a child needs that time as well. So that was another unifying force of MCARES was trying to have conversations with the college about this, but it wasn't until we were able to put it into contract language that it actually cleaned itself up and there was clarity about it. One of the things that the union does is offer more employees more opportunities to be transparent about their salaries. And I think that's one of the best ways we can avoid having um, discrepancies between people who are doing the same type of work and getting paid differently. That's one of the best ways we can combat bias based in gender and race is for people to talk about how much they get paid. As soon as we formed their union, uh, one of my coworkers came up to me and said to me, you are getting paid less than I do. And this is an issue that's been here before you came. The woman who did this job before you was paid less than I do, even though we do the same thing. And this is going to come up because we have a union. You're going to see everybody's salaries because uh, you're on the negotiation committee and you're going to find out. So, um, you know, it's something we should address. And we did. We talked about it as a team. We tried to go through the proper channels. At the end, it was really applying pressure through the union that resolved it. And it was resolved. Through that process, what's interesting is we saw management agree to change, to do like an audit and, and change a lot of people's salary grades. And primarily the issues were with admins. Those positions are traditionally held by women and you know women are overrepresented among like department admins and coordinators. That's where you see the most discrepancies. That's where you see the most like inconsistencies. I got to see primarily women getting bumped. Anything to add to that, Anna? So I wrote an editorial, you know, around the time that we were trying to finalize the contract, you know, but we were sort of not not getting there, not getting over the finish line. Uh, the union encouraged me to to write an editorial that went in the Weekly Dig, um, where we looked at pay inequity at the institution. You know, there's a there's a lot of talk uh, in this country about pay inequity and you know how much women make, supposed how much men make, but somehow we we miss the piece of the conversation that how do we get to pay equity for women? It's with unions. That's where you find men and women really making, you know, the same amount is is when you have a union involved. And so I really wanted to make sure that was part of the conversation that the institution, until it recognizes the union, it can't say it really cares about pay equity and cares about women having a voice in the workplace. So that's sort of another aspect of the, of, you know, when we talk about uh, women's issues and, and how the union addresses that. A moment that seems to have come up now like three times almost. And I'll, I'll use the sick bank conversation as a metaphor for it or, or the example for it. You know, we're talking time and again here, it seems, about relatively common sense things. Somebody else was able to get sick time donated, so you wanted to donate it to John Albert and then to the next person, right? And 
though they had written, you're holding the language, the policy that they wrote to, to allow this situation, you know, they, they won't just be like, oh, well, we did it before. We should do it again. So what is it about that moment? What holds them back from just going ahead with the common sense angle of these things that, that it takes a union to push them over? Do you know what I'm saying? I remember at the time when Anna and I went back to HR after I had had my sick time shared, sitting down and saying, you know, you know, Anna would point out that this was something that was a part of Emerson's values and a part of the things we should be doing. I don't know what the spark is, but I just remember the director saying, well, we've looked at what some other institutions do and we just don't, we think it's incredibly complicated to pull off. So it was just basically one of those issues that they really did not want to do this and they did not want us to expose that Anna had done this. I think that really that really kind of sparked us to do the reach out to start organizing. And I think that was a really important moment. But I'll have to say that from the moment I came into the department, every other day Anna was like, we need to form a union. We need to form. You should knock on my door. And it, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm learning a new job. I'm in a new committee. I'm tired. And then we just got to the point. It's like, OK, now's the time to strike. There wasn't the will. I mean, it was it would involve some administrative hours to figure it out and to. But it wasn't as if there there weren't blueprints on how to make these things happen. You know, it was really easy to say, oh, yes, we should do this. That's an excellent idea you know, but not actually make it happen. Because there were other constituencies on campus that were unionized and did have the power and did push for what they needed and wanted. So they always got priority. You know, our concerns were, you know, if they had the time, if they had the energy, if they, you know, and it was always funny because Lee's stance on the union was always, you know, union agnostic. I don't see why, you know, we need a union that's sort of paternalistic, like we, we're we're so good to you and like lots of employers. We're, we're a family, you know, but a family that's going to let you go without a paycheck because you have some kind of medical um, emergency. It's funny, I see the union as we're doing the institution a huge favor by holding them to their values um, so that they can say the institution makes good on all of these promises. I think it's good for PR and I think it's good for retaining staff. You know, people feel like they have a real home at the institution. They have a voice, they have a contract, they have job security. And I think that that, really makes the institution stronger for everybody. So yeah, so it was, it was, you know, they could say all they wanted that this was a good idea. There was no reason for them to make it happen un until we forced it. Unions may be an entity that feels like a throwback to a bygone era, but in fact, the issues and challenges that a union can help take on are quite progressive. This is reflected in the shared sick time resource and other concepts as well. In organizing conversations, I come across people who make poverty wages here at Emerson. And I'm like, this is a poverty wage. And they're like, I want an opportunity to take more responsibility and do more work 
and prove that I can make more money. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't want those things. You don't have to have those things. This is, this is the story. This is the narrative. That's like, if you work hardest, you prove yourself, you're worthy of making a living wage. It's like, no, you already are working hard. You're working 40 hours a week, actually more than that, probably. Because a lot of them are, uh, they do have really, really demanding jobs that go beyond that. You're working full time. All these people are making like poverty wages here. They have second and third jobs. And then it's like, it's just the way it is. And especially because, you know, it's a nonprofit, but it's the arts. Yeah, we're, we're an art school. We're, we're training students in the arts to send them out to be poor. And, um, and, and why are they poor? Because people don't value their work. And I remember reading these blog posts by, by people who are clueless. They're like, how I'm going to, you know, succeed. It's like, you know, like my dad told me, I'm, I'm going to be the first person in the office in the last person out. Not, not everybody can be the first person in the office or the last person out by definition. So the only way for you to succeed is to be better than everybody else because the resources are limited and you have to fight everybody for them. So you can be the person who succeeds. People have to prove that they're worth $15 an hour, even though $15 an hour is not like living wage. You know, why would a waiter make $15 an hour? Like if you just say everybody should make $34 an hour and be like, well, I don't know, these construction workers make that. You think a waiter works as much as a construction worker, as hard as a construction worker? And I'm like, why are we having a conversation about who works harder, a waiter or a construction worker? Why are we having a conversation about who works harder, a construction worker or Jeff Bezos? Not only are there the hardworking, they're very smart and shrewd, but I'm like, are you like a hundred billion times smarter or you're a really good thief? You know, Amazon fought the, uh, the Alabama union effort so, so hard. This giant is so afraid because they knew if they want their union everywhere else across, it would ripple. They'll be, you know, they would have to pay fair wages. But unions are not just about giving things away for free. United, we can achieve a more equitable situation for all members of the team, as Alona describes here. A lot of times, you know, people don't understand why I have a labor union for clerical workers and administrative staff, because it's like we're not working at a coal mine. The prices that they paid was blood, like they, they paid in blood to, to get them and us to where we are in terms of labor. Not only within their unions, within their towns, within their coal mines, but also like the legal battles that actually like allowed unions to have some members and unions to have protections. Because back then there wasn't even that. Now, now we have like their laws. You get fired unjustly. You can file a charge. That didn't exist. The idea of unions was like a new thing. They were like on the frontier. So, you know, you think about changes on any front. It takes work, it takes sacrifice, but more than that, it, what you said in the beginning, it takes enough people to agree with you, both among your coworkers and among your community to understand that there is a problem. In joining or forming a union, members connect themselves to a long, distinguished and hard fought line of progress from the early days of organizing right up to today and into the future. John Albert knows that creating a union is just the first step toward equity. After the union is won, the real work begins. That starts the, the, the power of collective bargaining and a collective voice. And, you know, I, I'm always, I've learned through my experience as also being a professional union organizer for a time with Unite Here, that you don't win a contract at the table. 
you win a contract by escalating all these issues that bring bring attention and voice and to amplify issues that are staff issues. And if we continue to sit and pretend that, you know, in the Emerson community, it means at all except staff, uh, what our contract does now is it, the, the most important thing, at least to me, is that it gives us voice. It allows us to say, hey, we think we should have a staff member on the presidential search committee, or we actually do have concerns and questions about, you know, our retirement investments, and maybe someone should from our union should sit on that committee. It allows us to question the institution, say, you know, hey, you may have forgotten us, but, you know, that that's a part of the union that I think is incredibly helpful is to make sure that we're not lost as staff members in, in the conversations that are in the corners of the college and that we're first and foremost. And, and using those as examples to show that we do have a part in making Emerson not only an amazing college and filled with great educators, but it's also a great place to work. And perhaps the union contract can make Emerson an employer of choice in the area we live in. Ilona pointed out that the true power of a union does not really rest in grand ideas, but in specific, focused actions. This is what fighting looks like. It's not in theory, one day I'll fight about it. Oh, I'm with you in principle. No, it means going out there and hold a sign. You know, that's, that's what fighting is, and it happens immediately. I think people have these, you know, these inflated ideas of what movements are. You know, I'll march to Washington when there's a million people marching with me. It's like, no, no, stand with six people outside the building with a sign for something. You know, that makes a difference as well. I think we are always evolving in that. And that's the thing with with some people to understand about unions. It's like, oh, we got our contract. We're done. It takes more energy and devotion to maintain the contract and make sure that both sides are living up to the promises they made. But the conversation and the the labor battle, the labor fight is always, always there. You know, we can applaud ourselves for the things you do well, but I think we're always moving forward to getting to that that stage, every contract, every day, every situation, every memo of agreement that we come up with is is trying to to get toward those values. All these little victories ripple. What we get here at Emerson as a union other unions can point to being like, they got it, we can do it too. Other employers who don't have unions and staff being like, eh, Amazon has to do this now. Let's improve our benefits and our salaries so our members don't unionize. Thank you for listening. We hope you will join us in future episodes as we continue to explore what it means to come together for the common good. Unity Unmuted is a loud, proud production of the Emerson Staff Union. Original music by Half-Hearted Attack. Research assistance from Diana Potter and Dan Crocker. Technical support from Audrey Park and Rachel Levin. Homer Sorabi keeps us all together. I'm your host, Tim Douglas. Tim Douglas.